us as a community, we're neighbours. One person isn't an immigrant and the other person isn't a citizen. In our everyday lives, we're neighbours, we're a community. And these are the values that we stand for. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited to be in the studio today with Professor Mikola Benson, who is Professor of Public Sociology at Lancaster University. Um, Mikola is a Brexit expert, obviously Surviving Society alumni, podcaster and host of Who Do We Think We Are, who we recently just had an episode swap with, and also Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. Mikla's got so many other accolades, but because she comes on the show like annually now, like we, I feel like we have like a kind of Mikla chronology, like a Mikla yeah, like yeah. we need a Mikla playlist and basically set up and say, I'm actually gonna do that, a Mikla playlist. And basically what Mikla's scholarship obviously is a chronicle of is Brexit, but also this new kind of era, or is it a new era? We'll talk about now of quote unquote global Britain. Um, citizenship, migration, like so many things that I think your work has developed with over time with the governments and politics. And it, I mean, we've spoke about it on the show before about you working on such such live issues and how crazy that is. But it really like looking back at all the times you've been on the show, like each time there's it's been a very mm. almost feels like a conjuncture each time. It's like the evolution of the Brexit process, right? Yeah. It's really interesting that you put it like that. And thank you very much. You're always far too kind. Why? Um, no. <laughs> I've, told her about, I've told her about when white men come on the show, telling me this, 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 true. this, this. It is very true. Sorry, white men. We do like you really, but like you do go on about yourselves a lot. <laughs> I mean, the way I, the way I, the way I put it, Chantal, is I think I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment. I don't know why I keep going for these live issues. It's almost like they follow me around. So, so as you know, I've been doing some work around Hong Kong recently. I've published a paper quite recently around Hong Kong. And when I started doing that research, the government hadn't done anything about Hong Kong. And then all of a sudden, I'm doing all of this reading, you know, really, really happy at my desk, Mm -hmm. looking through um, archival material about how the British government transformed the status of the people of Hong Kong over time from the 1940s onwards. And then all of a sudden, they go and make this announcement that they're like, oh, you know, actually, we're going to have this bespoke visa route for Hong Kongers. I was like, great, here we go again. I thought I was safely dealing with an issue <laughs> mm. that was in the past and mm. all of a sudden it came to the fore again. Can we explain like the sort of circumstances around that for the listeners first? Yeah, so um, I think that there are a few things going on there. So for people who don't know, back in the history, um, the people of Hong Kong, people like my grandma, who was the third generation of a South Asian family uh, in Hong Kong. And I say she was South Asian because it was a Muslim family who married in, who were buried in the Muslim graveyard um, in Hong Kong, um, were actually citizens of the UK and colonies. So in 1948, when Britain first introduced its citizenship uh, legislation, its nationality legislation, my grandmother, born in Hong Kong in 1928, my grandfather, born in Wiltshire, just a mile from Stonehenge, in the same year were both citizens of the UK and colonies and they had both had the same sets of rights so they could both freely move within the British Empire that in itself sorry Michael to cut you will be wild for some people to hear that because yeah, that know. was the reality like as in citizenship 
yeah. was border like some forms of citizenship were borderless. Yeah, I, well, I think the other thing that it kind of points out is um, that free movement that we often associate with the European Union. That's not the only free movement regime. We, there have been f- other types of free movement regime. And of course, if you listen to kind of Gaminda Bambara talking about the British Empire um, or, well, and, and various other scholars, scholars who work on kind of this genealogy of citizenship, what they would say is actually, well, is this migration? Because people weren't crossing international borders. They were moving within an imperial state. So from that point of view, I, I think that there are kind of different conversations to be had about borders and it shows how recent the borders that we now take for granted are. What you start to see, and I know you've had other guests on who've talked about borders and the development of citizenship and migration in Britain um, over a period of time is the, the British government introducing sets of restrictions as a way of trying to stem that free movement into the UK. So you get the Commonwealth Immigration Acts starting in the 1960s, which mean that people can be named as citizens, but they can, at the borders of the United Kingdom, be treated as migrants. So they have to come in using work visas, work permits. Um, They have to go through those kind of early immigration controls. So they're considered as aliens for the purposes of immigration control. And the Hong Kongers were among them. How do we get to the present day? So there's a whole like 50 years of history to go through. Um, But by the time we get to 1981 and the introduction of this thing called the British Nationality Act, which is kind of the basis of the legislation that we have in nationality law today, um, what you've got is a situation where the British Empire has kind of mostly politically decolonised. So a lot of the former dependencies, a lot of the former colonies are now independent nation states, not all of them. And Hong Kong really is the biggest one that's still there in 1981. And the circumstances around Hong Kong are really particular. Um, Hong Kong is very, very commonly referred to as Britain's last colony. It was a colony until 1997. And I think that's really important. That's within that's within my lifetime, certainly. And I think some of you as well. Um, <laughs> all of us. All of us. Only, <laughs> only 25 years ago. Um, so, you know... So we're getting close to the turn of the 20, 20, 21st century and we've still basically got this colony, this kind of awkward reminder that Britain is still an empire in lots of ways. But the other thing about Hong Kong, of course, was that the circumstances meant that Hong Kong, unlike a lot of the other colonies and dependencies, could never actually become an independent nation state. So it could never be self-governing it would never have the right to self-determination because the agreement was that sovereignty was transferred from Hong Kong, uh, from from Britain to China in 1997 when the lease on the new territories expired. So what happens is in the early 1980s, after the Nationality Act has been announced, the British Nationality Act of 1981, which has transformed all of those British... um, citizens who live outside of the UK into um, British dependent territories citizens, there's a whole raft of new negotiations, a little bit like I would say what we've seen between the UK and the EU, but between Britain and the People's Republic of China. And this is a negotiation over the future of Hong Kong. And what they do is they agree to this 50 year transition period 
where which is what's referred to as the one country two systems regime um and as part of that china says well we don't actually like the fact that these british that these these hong kongers are referred to as british citizens or british dependent territory citizens and so um what emerges is a transformation again an amendment to the british nationality act to change the title of those um hong kongers so they're what what's known as british nationals overseas and actually they were the largest remaining category of overseas of british overseas citizens at that point in time it were estimated to be three and a half million hong kongers who were eligible for that status as british nationals overseas so this is really important history because it's that particular category that has been used as the basis for this new visa for the hong kongers now why did britain decide to issue this so as we know um, there's been a lot of turmoil on the ground in hong kong um, there's been oppression by the government that um, local protesters would say is um, really challenging the Hong Kong way of life, um, which is about what, as they see it, what's happening is that China is kind of reneging on its one country's two system solution because we're only 25 years in, we're not 50 years in. Um, and as a result of that, in a part of the world where people do not have universal suffrage, so not everyone is allowed to vote, the political system um, retains some of the problems of the colonial era um, from the point of view of the fact that people don't have the right to vote for their local leaders uh, in that respect. It's a bit more complicated than that, but that's kind of mm -hmm. the headlines. Um, people have used various forms of political expression as an alternative. So obviously we saw the Umbrella Revolution um, and subsequent what's that, uprisings. What's, that, what's the Umbrella so Revolution? So the, the, the big protests on the streets of Hong Kong um, around the, um, I, I need to remember my history, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, protesting against some of the uh, changes that were being brought in, some of the political changes that were being brought in. And then more recently, the protests around the um, extradition treaty so you know if you were found guilty in hong kong you could be extradited to china to be tried um, whereas actually you're supposed to be able to be tried in um in hong kong as per the agreements that were laid out between britain and china um through the sino-british um agreement again the terminology around this gets really really complicated and it's mm. very contested so i think that's an important thing to to, bear, to say is is Britain creating a visa for Hong Kong to make themselves look like the good guys? So my personal opinion is that there might be an element of that. But I think we have to also, it's a bit, it is a little bit more, com I, it's always going to be more complicated. It's always, right? yeah, I'm just um, So, so I think that there are a few things going on here. Britain was, is not the only country to have offered a route out of Hong Kong for people for the people of Hong Kong. So there are other countries that have also been doing this. But I think the way it's framed, and I think this is what's interesting, when you look at the way that the visa is framed, when you look at the fact that it was the Foreign Office, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, who suggested that this was something that needed to happen, and then of course the Home Office have to implement it, I think that's really, really critical. And we're seeing that a lot actually, that the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office 
on the basis of kind of foreign policy decisions is making suggestions to the Home Office about how to offer visa routes for people. And a lot of these bespoke schemes, I mean, Tiso and I were talking about this earlier, a lot of these bespoke schemes have their origins in foreign policy decisions. By making these political decisions, they're remaking citizenship, right? It leaves these people in a kind of nexus. So they can be British sometimes, or they can be Hong Kongers, or, or China wants to make them Chinese. So they occupy this odd space. Um, I think that that's the public narrative that's been circulated. Mm. So the public narrative around the Hong Kongers has been very much about a route to citizenship. Mm. They haven't been offered a route to citizenship any more than anyone else has offered a route to citizenship. They've been offered a bespoke visa. And de facto, visas, which are of a more permanent nature, offer a route to settlement in UK law. And I think that's really important to highlight. So I think that what's happened here is we have people who were formerly citizens or would have been citizens in, in British nationality law being remade as good migrants. Um, and at the same time, they've had to be cautious around it. I, I think that they've had to be very cautious around talking about this in terms of citizenship because China does not legally permit dual citizenship. And and it's also quite, I've got friends who are originally from China, who, when they've become British, have surrendered their Chinese nationality, their citizenship. So so I think that although that, that public narrative is there around these people being citizens, really, they're not. But also within that public narrative, you're kind of, you know, that there's another side to this too, which is that the way that it's been framed publicly, and there was unilateral support within the ho both Houses of Parliament for the provision of this visa for the people of Hong Kong, which is very, very unusual. Um, I think it's be partly because the British government did frame it around a continuing obligation to people who were their former colonial citizens. So you see that and you see it that there... Uh, so, so, so there's the specifics of the situation around Britain's relationship with Hong Kong, past, present and potentially future, we'll see. There's also the geopolitical position of Hong Kong as being in that Indo-Pacific area that the UK government, through their foreign policy, is so keen to continue holding a stake in. But there's also the way in which that Hong Kong BNO visa gets upheld by the Home Office alongside um, the previous provisions that were made for Ugandan Asians to move to the UK. So this has been in the news a lot over the last week because there's been a major anniversary around that. But both of those examples are upheld as a demonstration that the UK is leading the way on a global scale in human rights. Okay. So it's presented as kind of humanitarian logic, mm -hmm. saving people from oppressive governments. Yeah. Is that ironic? I don't think it's ironic. I think it's. I, I think it shows you how contradictory all of these things are, and we have to take them to pieces in order to see that. So mm. the public narrative is always very highly simplified, and yet, you know, when we start to look into these in a lot more detail, if we start to look back historically, you start to see how layered these things are, and it's. It really is not insignificant that it's through foreign policy that this bespoke visa has made its way onto the books.
So is it similar to that narrative that like when Rishi Sunak was running for his leadership campaigns, the idea that he, his parents were allowed to come and he would always make that narrative like, so Britain are kind of harking back to that colonial link to those places. I think there's, there's it's re- really important that we think that, okay, in the last, since, since Hong Kong had its sovereignty transferred to China, um, we've heard very little about Hong Kong. And then over the last five, six years, it had kind of become, because because it had attracted global attention, what was happening on the ground there, it kind of suddenly started to creep back in. So you can look through like the foreign policy records. So the um, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office had for every six months, they prepared this report on things that were happening in Hong Kong. And this is one of the sources that I went back to when I was preparing that paper to look at the changing narrative around Britain's uh, relationship to Hong Kong and to the people of Hong Kong. And I think that what you're pointing to, T, is this idea that they kind of rediscovered their colonial subjects in this particular moment. And we should ask questions about why they would rediscover them at that point in time, not disregarding the fact that this has been a really, really important route for lots of people to leave Hong Kong. Um, So I think that that is definitely part of what's going on there. And it has, it's been really interesting to see how in the wake of Brexit, because this was of course the first scheme that was announced after Britain left the European Union and ended at the end of the transition period, that suddenly the first people that they're prepared to offer safe haven to, and I've got my fingers in quotation marks around that, that is government narrative. If you look at their integrated review around defence security and foreign policy, they really do talk about Britain as a safe haven for the people of Hong Kong, that they go to their former colonial subjects who over time actually had their rights eroded and eroded and eroded in British British law. So their mobility rights, I mean. So I think that that's, um, I think that's really important to bear in mind. So would you kind of juxtapose that with what happened in Afghanistan as well then? How they treated, well, treated, I can't remember, they had an X amount of number, didn't they? 50,000, yeah. Yeah, to come over. Um, So... I'm not an expert on on the Afghani resettlement scheme. I do know that it's been widely condemned because actually what was promised has still hasn't been delivered. Um, Sorry, can we just say to this as what we're talking about here? So when we withdrew from Afghanistan, 2021? 2021. So we set up a a, a visa scheme for them to come over? Resettlement scheme. Resettlement scheme, yeah, yeah, to come over. So they what they did was they said that they would offer 50,000, I think I'd have to double check the Mm. figures, um, 50,000 of these resettlement um, schemes to uh, resettlement visas to people from Afghanistan. I, I think the numbers are still not even close to that. Um, there have been there have been lots of um, critiques of it. Um, I don't think I'm juxtaposing it to that, but I'm saying that these kind of exceptional schemes where, where you say, okay, this particular population from this place at this point in time can move because we've made a special provision, sits on top of the broader um, standardised immigration controls. And I think that what you see with these is this idea that we can somehow pick and choose who we want to come, which of course is probably not that surprising in the context of a government narrative around Brexit which was about taking back control of the borders. So that kind of very public framing of we're choosing to support these people, we're helping these people, 
sits right in line with that, I think. It, so it kind of creates a kind of like a tiered system then of like deserving and undeserving who you can, if you're picking. George has just had a look, and actually, it's five thousand people with the with the ambition of, of twenty thousand. So it's even worse. Lo- yeah, even worse than yeah, lower than, and that is obviously appalling. Um, I feel like sometimes I think when we're talking about like hierarchies of like citizenship, hierarchies of belonging, hierarchies of yeah, who's in, who's out, undeserving, deserving, it's really difficult because it's like okay, so what's happening for the Hong Kongers, you'll have other people being like, well, what about us sort of thing? And that in itself kind of plays into the state's ambition always to divide and rule, isn't it? Like, could it be, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this, but just putting it out there, like, could it be that actually we should be arguing for, well, we should be arguing for no borders, obviously, but like, could it be that we're not, it's not, it shouldn't be a race to the bottom and actually, okay, what can we learn from this? How do we get more for others in this sort of situation? Could it be that or actually like, is this just part of Empire 2.0 trying to rehash itself and it should be something which we just detract from completely in terms of going back to thinking about just removing all borders? I think that you're absolutely right in the way you frame that around how it gets mobilised through this kind of divide and rule uh, narrative. And I've seen it time and time again, people saying, well, if they can do it for the Hong Kongers, why can't they do it for us? Um, but I think that quite often some of that uh, some of that detail gets lost. So I've heard people say, you know, just going back to what, to what I was saying before, Tiso, around... Um, saying, oh, you know, they've just given the Hong Kongers citizenship. Well, no, they haven't actually given the Hong Kongers citizenship. What they've done is they've provided them with a bespoke route to um, migrate to and settle in the UK, which may lead to citizenship ultimately, because that is what visas, permanent visas are supposed to lead to, and kind of use that in that way. So it gets very, very complicated and muddy. And yes, I'm kind of with you. It would be wonderful if we could if we could move towards a world where 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 borders didn't function in this way. And it is obviously in the British case entirely linked to its ambitions on the world stage after Brexit. It's entirely linked to that colonial history. But I also caution people a little bit here because it's not really as though things are much better in some of our neighboring states. It's not really as though the European Union is much better mm. in terms of those um, creating those different hierarchies. Um, yeah, I mean, listeners to the show will remember, like, we had, we had a really good episode with Tom and Arshad talking about, like, the EU borders and stuff and how violent they are and how obviously racialized it is. And, yeah, I think we have been quite clear on the show um, with a lot of experts, Lucy Mablin as well, about how not imperfect how destructive and uh, the eu's border bordering system is um but i don't know like there is something very pernicious and awful about this some of these some of these conversations about citizenship when it comes to britain and almost feels very help, hopeless and helpless um, which I can't even imagine what that must feel like, like researching it all the time and constantly hearing, like, as we said, the public narrative or sound bites. And then actually those of us that are supposed to be within kind of broad coalitions of people that agree, like 
making it kind of race to bottom like what about us and you kind of you do you sympathize and empathize with that as well but actually like we need to be more creative and imaginative don't we in how we think about these things in order to fight it effectively yeah and it's such a bind to you know it i'm not saying it's a bind for me but it's such a bind i mean i was just thinking while you were speaking there about the conversations that i've been having with manuela botka about um the global citizenship regime the global migration citizenship regime the colonial histories that make these inequalities in citizenship and that mean that in that, that people desire or um hold on to cling on to um citizenships that we know are engaged in these really pernicious um mm. bordering techniques so sorry i'm being really obscure and abstract there um so um the examples that she uses in her work are um from the caribbean and she talks about these locations in the caribbean which are still europe essentially i mean when we think about europe we never really think about the fact that europe's borders are outside this european landmass um that they exist in in the Caribbean. So for example, the most westerly border now between Britain and the EU is in the Caribbean. But th that was never really part of that public conversation around, around Brexit. But she highlights that, you know, these countries find themselves in quite a challenging bind because they're reliant on Europe for aid. They're reliant on um, Europe to kind of give them passports. Um, and so the idea of developing a local citizenship in a context where a European citizenship is so valuable is quite, a is quite a challenging one for those states to really think about in terms of what that does to the people um, within, within their borders. So, so there are those kind of considerations going on, which is we've, we've got all of this past and that past is shapes the present so fundamentally it creates what I've referred to in my work as the coloniality of British citizenship, um, which means that, you know, we have a high, we even have a hierarchy in nationality law um, where, you know, there's some of us who have full British citizenship, but there are other people who don't get those full rights. So, for example, I was reading, reading um, some, uh, an example from the research that we've been conducting about um, Brexit and Britain's borders after Brexit. Um, and it was from an Italian guy who has a daughter whose mother is British. But because her mother was born outside of the UK, and because his daughter was then born outside of the UK, his daughter is not eligible to be a British citizen. And this is a kind of a weird... Why is that? It's because of legislation that was brought in in 1981 that means that if, you're, if you are born outside of... Um, the United Kingdom, you cannot pass on your British citizenship to your child. And I suspect that this is, my suspicion is that this is a colonial legacy, mm. which is that when they were trying to restrict British citizenship, they wanted to Oh my God, when they're trying exclude, to do eugenics, it's like eugenics, isn't it? Well, <laughs> when they want to exclude all of these people overseas, this becomes a really great idea. So if you were born outside of the United Kingdom, uh, you cannot pass your your citizenship onto your children, and actually you can't pass on a lot a lot of the other categories. So the Hong Kong BNO the Hong Kong BNO status, the British National Overseas status, that was also not transmissible to children. So anybody born after 1997, it's not a BNO 
is not a B&O and therefore originally was not eligible to take up the offer of the Hong Kong B&O visa. And when you start to think about who the people on the ground were who were protesting and the age of those people, what this meant was there were large numbers of people who were protesters who were not even eligible for the visa route that the British government had proposed and brought into legislation. And if wow. they'd wanted to come, they could come as dependents of Hong Kong BNO visa holders, so as that, you know, their parents probably or their grandparents, but that would mean the whole family would have to relocate to the UK in order that those young people could come. Now, from October this year, that is going to change so that anyone who has a Hong Kong BNO parent is now eligible for the route. But we're talking a year and a year and ten months of that of that scheme being in force. So the alternatives were that they would come and they would claim asylum. That was an alternative. So again, it's not really as extensive and inclusive as it looks on the surface or as it's been sold. So in the current context, though, isn't haven't they achieved what they want to achieve? Controlling their borders to the to the point where it's yeah. it's ridiculous, like almost like a, a fortress island. That's true, actually. They've done what they wanted. Have they got what they wanted? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that there's there's an element of truth in that. I, definitely. Yeah. You can see that they, you can see it works as a public narrative. You can see um, that, yes, that's, 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 that's what they, they've got much tighter grip on, on who comes in because it's, it's really clear cut now. The people who can enter freely into the UK are British citizens. That's it. If it's being driven by foreign policy, you're creating bespoke deals with individual countries. So it just seems complex. So if it's driven by foreign policy, it can change at a moment's notice because foreign policy shifts quite often, right? So you think about Ukraine, for example, yeah. as well. Or relationship with China. So I think we need to, we need to distinguish between foreign policy and between geopolitics. Okay. So I think that's that's important to bear in mind. Actually, what's interesting about looking at Ukraine and looking at Hong Kong together is actually the kind of geopolitical conflict that then um, potential geopolitical conflict. I'm going to put it there. You know, so so it's well documented. I would would say that there have been rising tensions between China and between Britain, but also some of Britain's allies. Um, and I'm particularly thinking about the Five Eyes Alliance, which is the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand spot a theme. <laughs> when were we talking? Oh, yeah. were we talking about this with Danny? Wasn't we? Danny Dolan was like, yeah. "Watch the five That was yeah, that. Watch the five. That eyes. was last September, and he was like, "Yeah, everyone needs to be watching." I've that. been watching the Five Eyes for a long time um, because <laughs> yeah. it's, I, I think they, I think those are the right countries. Um, mm. And it's this, you know, in the lead up to Brexit, it was Kanzuk, uh, which is the, another acronym for it. But there's a very, very long history to that alliance that goes back to probably the 1800s. Yeah, World War One. they were big in World War One. Yeah, they? yeah. Um, so, so, um, so it's to do with, with rising geopolitical tensions between China, Britain and, and other, I mean, there are other nation states too, and, and particularly when the kind of international lobbying to bring sanctions against China, um, Britain was, was, was engaged in that with, with, with all of those, with all of those allies in lots of ways. and. They were struggling to get the European Union to come on, on side with it as well. Um, so so that's that's one side of it. And similarly, when we look at Ukraine, I think it's very 
it's probably a common sense argument to say that, you know, there are tensions between Russia um, and um, Britain and, and some of its allies and, and between the EU as well. Um, so I think that that's, that's conflict, that's geopolitical conflict. And of course, yes, those things seem to come from nowhere, but they don't really. Mm. So when you start to look back through kind of foreign policy discussions, you see them coming up time and time again. So, you know, the UK has a Russia policy, the UK has a China policy, and that's where you start to see these things coming out. But um, I think that, so so there's like that combination of foreign policy and um, and geopolitics there that needs to be borne in mind. But the other deals, so, and we were talking earlier, weren't we, Tiso, about how these trade agreements mm-hmm. that the British government is drawing up between with bilaterally with all of these other countries which it has to do because it's come out of the european union and now it's got to kind of like go back to ground zero on all these trade agreements um a lot of them also include provisions around mobility around migration um which will start to be introduced over a period of time and we saw that um the first one that was agreed i think was was india and there's a memorandum of understanding about a mobility partnership um, the exact framing of that still has to be um, announced, I believe. But we're seeing those new provisions come in. So it's making actually the migration regime in the UK quite fractured in lots of ways, but doing exactly what you talked about before, bringing in um, potentially new hierarchies of mm. deservingness and undeservingness. Um, but I imagine I'd be really surprised if those didn't fall along really familiar lines in lots of ways um, that we know from kind of the colonial legacies, the racial legacies, all of those kinds of things. One of the things that I want to talk to you about, Nicola, um, and it also obviously does relate to these things, is like the future of Britain and how Britain sees itself going forward. Like at the moment, it's the it's the 9th of August. Is it 8th or 9th? 9th. 9th of August today. The Tory party are currently in their little leadership battle. I actually had a theory the other day that the winner of the Tory party leadership is actually going to be Boris Johnson. No, no he is. No, no, he's, no, he's coming back. He's making moves. He's making moves. He's in the Trump. He's, he's making Trump. moves behind the scenes um, pre-Conservative party conference. Mm-hmm. I need to get. I need to, I need to speak to some, a few other politics people. But anyway, just going to put it out there. Maybe it's Boris Johnson. Um, but um, yeah, so thinking about the fact that we're probably about to have another... Um, Tory party leader that's very much more to the far right. I think one, of, I, I mean, some I had someone describe Liz Trust possibly as more extreme right, to be fair. Um, we're out of the EU. Rishi, as you were talking in our pre chat, um, Nicola was saying that he wants to make keep Brexit safe, which does sound very much like what we heard on our door, what we heard on the doorsteps when we were campaigning is that we need to get Brexit done. Um, it's like, it feels like from the same kind of school of thought, doesn't it? Like, doesn't mean anything. It's a soundbite that gets people's nationalism going. And thinking about what do we mean or what is meant by global Britain in the actualities of it or actually in the narratives of it? Like, what what is their plan? And I think we spoke to you about this before, Nicola. Like, with all this stuff, like this creating fortress Britain, being very particular about who's in, who's out, cost of living crisis, about to go into a recession... It just doesn't make sense practically for Britain to do what it's doing. It only makes sense in terms of nationalism and racism and xenophobia. And it's like, 
I just I always come back to this point when it came to Brexit as well. What's the plan? Or is it just about sentiment? Is it just about symbolism? How tragic. Like do you know, that's like that's a million dollar question, right? Yeah, and, like, you know, Tiso asked me this while we were walking down the to plan? the studio. <laughs> what's their plan? Yeah. What are they thinking? Yeah. I have no idea. It's I crazy. genuinely have no idea. And um I mean it certainly isn't to do the job of government and the, there is one job that government's supposed to do. And the one job that government is supposed to do is to is to keep the economy afloat. Mm. And you know, so I, I mean that's 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 how I feel about it. I hope that that's factually <laughs> correct. It is factually correct. That's yeah. what's the UK that's what governments are supposed to do. <laughs> that's their job. I, I suppose it's like a question, it's it's a question about keeping the economy afloat for who. Um which I, I think not even their people. Their people have got to pay fuel. Like they, they the, do. Like, so, do you know right. what I mean? Like it feels like the suffering is about to become heavily multi-classed. So what's the plan? But, I, I don't know. I think if you if you see it in terms of reinforcing uh capitalist tendencies, because obviously with the kind of climate change coming and people um, and people migrating. So for example, when you look at Sudan and Dafa, you have a lot of people migrating towards Europe again. So it's about reconfiguring Europe to maintain its status at the top and the five highest countries to maintain that racial hierarchy hierarchy, and all those to maintain it in place. When you look at it head on, it doesn't make sense. But if you look at it from a kind of wider bird's eye view, it's about maintaining that hegemonic control. And But, but, but is so the control is at the cost of majority of the population. But that's, but that's, all, that's, it's that's not always even, been. It's not, not even at the cost of the majority of the population. There, there's that. But there's also the fact that when you put in place such a strict visa requirements, you're always going to have a reserve labour force who's wow. undocumented, poorly paid, if paid at all. Um, and that is, that's been... Beneficial to capitalism, right? <laughs> I didn't want to say it's beneficial to capitalism, but yeah. but really that's 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 one of the ways in which capitalism over time, for long periods of time, has functioned, um, is having that kind of reverse reserve labour force. I mean, I think that that's that's really important to kind of bear, to bear in mind in lots of ways. I have no idea what the plan is. Um, I, I've stopped looking to find out the answer to that question because I'm sure it's not a plan that I would agree with. Um, and it is, it's, you know, it's it's really really difficult to find to find hope uh, in in these these things. But also, I think the important thing, the thing that I've been trying to do really over the last year and a half, two years, is really to think about those longer histories to how yeah. we got here, and kind of come to the conclusion and, and the reason I use this phrase global Britain which is in inverted commas again it's it is the way that the government themselves describe the project of post-Brexit Britain as global Britain um, I've kind of come to the conclusion that this process and this won't be a surprise for most people but this is a process that's been ongoing ever since the coalition came into power in 2010 mm -hmm. um, we started to see this through the development of the policy that was originally called the hostile environment policy that became the compliant environment policy. We've seen it in the kind of the deepening of the borders. If you start to trace back all of the public narration around it, so I can remember listening to Theresa May in the early 2010s when she was in charge of the Home Office, so before she became Prime Minister, talking about putting into place contingency measures in light of the European sovereign debt crisis to prevent floods of um, 
Spanish and Greek migrants coming to the UK. Um, so, so there's been a really concerted and ongoing effort on behalf of the Conservative Party. So it's Conservative Party policy policy around migration to really bring this into being. And Brexit is part of it. So things don't start and end with Brexit. It's caught up in that project from 2010 to the present day. And of course, that project built on a new Labour project. And I think we have to be really, really clear about that. A new Labour project that was in force over the period of the new Labour government, where, first of all, you get that massive securitisation of borders. Detention centres. Yeah, detention centres post 9-11, but that was already in progress, actually, even before those, those terror attacks took place. So you can see that that project of an exclusionary Britain, you know, it, it doesn't start and end with the Conservatives. It's been going for a really long time. It builds on these decades, actually, of, of um, bringing in these borders, which is a global project as well. It's not, it's not just a British project. I don't understand where that sense of being flooded come from. Like you said, it, it always comes up like people are going to come here in their droves and it, it never happens. But there is this fear that they're going to be flooded. Where does it come from? I don't, I don't think that they actually think that. I just think they use it to divide and rule and keep power and make people scared, make people quote-unquote scared of others. I just think it's another way of other... I don't even think mm. they ever ever believe it. It's just a way of... They know what strings to pull. They know that people... Are, thing, right? They know that um, Britain has a special desire for hate. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think that there are other scholars who've written about this mm. and written about that metaphor and the origins of that metaphor and the long histories of othering and the ideas of, of you know, of people, you know, assaulting, assaulting Britain from the outside. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's not my specialism, that particular metaphor, but it is very, very well documented. And there's a kind of, actually, should I tell you whose who's work I was reading it's, again about this? Uh, it's it's anti-Semitism anti as well and anti-blackness yeah. combined yeah. as well, yeah. So I was reading, I was actually, I went back to some work by Satnam Verdi and he was talking around, you know, how that narrative came in. Um, and again, you know, as you've said, Chantal, time and again, in this, in, while we've been recording, you know, it's at the heart of divide and rule. It's about breaking solidarities between people. It's about turning us against one another. So, yeah, so I'd gone back to that paper. I remember um, Satnam's paper from in the Sociological Review that he published, where he gives all of those examples over time um, of how the powers that be um, turn people against one another by introducing differential policies, by introducing different sets of rules. So whether you're talking about in Jamestown, Virginia, during colonial <laughs> era, um, uh, during the colonial era in, in, in what is now the United States of America, um, or whether you're talking about what we see on the streets around us in the present day. There are moments of hope, though. Just we're not going to get them from the government. Yes. So if we think about what was happening the other week in Peckham and we think about you know how people came out on the streets to stop that detention van, you can see that people are actively resisting, that people are, um, you know, saying there's another way of understanding this and it's us as a community. You know, we're neighbours. One person isn't an immigrant and the other person isn't a citizen in our everyday lives. Yeah. We're neighbours, we're a community. And these are the values that we stand for. There are moments of hope and we're seeing those. We've seen it 
also in the resistance to what's happening down in what happens on the Kent coast. Mm. Uh, we saw it in Glasgow, you know, taking really creative ways of saying, well, actually, no, we're not going to stand for this. We're not going to let our neighbours be taken away like this or treated like this. And just on that theme of hope, have you seen any kind of hopeful stories, anecdotes or even policy coming through in the research you and Nando have been doing? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> um, well, the nature of the research often means that we see quite, um, we, we see the sharp end of it. I'll be really, really honest. We see the people who, in consequence of Brexit, have had their lives changed in ways that um, that they might not have anticipated and in ways that create challenges for them. Um, and, and really what we've been documenting most recently um, is how people who were already residents uh, in the UK or in the EU before Brexit um, have found the, border, the borders encroaching into their lives in ways that they hadn't either hadn't previously experienced or um, where in cases where, for example, people had rights that were derived from the fact that they were a member of an EU family member, whether they were British or otherwise. So they're already experiencing borders because they had differential rights within their families. Um, what we see is that the borders are deepening in their impact on people's lives. And I think that this is this is kind of an idea that's really at the heart of the work by Nira Yuval Davis, Georgie Wemmis and, and Catherine Cassidy in their book Bordering, where they talk about how one of the things that can hold migrants and citizens together is the fact that the borders are ever encroaching on people's lives. They're, they're a fact in our everyday lives. And that's a relatively new thing. That is a thing that they attribute to the onset of neoliberalism. Um, so they talk about kind of neoliberal governance and how and how um, bordering is part of that. The bordering as we see it today is part of that, that kind of everyday. So the fact that you basically have to demonstrate your right to live in the UK in order to access even the most basic of things, you know, whether it's because you want to rent a property or because you want to access healthcare, you know, things that you might think should be, you know, relatively straightforward, that you have to demonstrate your immigration status. Since we left the European Union, I haven't really thought about borders to kind of as we're traveling. So we went to Portugal a couple of weeks ago and we're just having to go through that process. And you're thinking, well, I never really thought about the impact of Brexit, really. A lot mm. of people didn't. And there's been a lot of, you may have seen, there's kind of been on both sides of, um, <laughs> on both sides, on the left and the right, there's been a lot of outrage mm. about the fact that all of a sudden, as a British citizen, when you enter an EU country, you now get your passport stamped. Um, and this seems to have come as a massive shock to lots and lots of people. Look at the symbolism. Everyone just love a bit of like outrage and but symbolism. It's been, I mean, yeah. it's got really, really messy and it's got really murky because it's all been caught up with like ongoing issues around citizens' rights. So for the EU citizens who are in the UK who had their rights transformed and for British citizens in the EU got their rights transformed. And, um, you know, some people have been saying, look, it's the EU punishing us. I mean, this is bullshit. This is really pure and simple Tell bullshit. Them. We do them. not have a right to free movement. Therefore, every time we enter another state, we get a stamp to show that we entered on that date and we get a stamp to show that we left on another date. This is just standard, basic border control. I mean, I, I will be honest with you. I was very... <laughs> I, went to I, went, I went to Greece in April. Yeah. Um, as you know, my, my partner is Greek. Um, he was already there, so I wasn't traveling with him. 
But, you know, standing in that queue at, at Athens, at, you know, to get my my passport stamped, listening to people around me. I mean, it was, you know, people people are shocked that this is happening. And that's, you know... But, but isn't that kind of linked to the colonial era, like the idea that a British passport means something? It means, it has kind of symbolism. A British passport still means something. Mm. A British passport still means something. Yeah. It's still one of the most powerful in the world, even though it's dropped quite a few places since we left the European Union. <laughs> Who's the most powerful? Oh, it depends. There are different indices. I, I did a little bit of research on this for the for when I was promoting that episode on the nationality and borders, on the <laughs> inequalities. Um, but, you know, actually it's not... On some measures, it's not a former colonial power because mm-hmm. um, I think it's like it will be like one of the Gulf states or something like that. Oh, interesting. Um, but on other measures, definitely European Union passports are still mm. very, very close to the top, which is unsurprising for lots and lots of reasons. Um, I think in the lives of everyday people, it's it's just because they never had to think about it. Mm. So, yeah, you know, if you go to, you know, if you go to the US, you stand in that queue, you go through, you have to do your Esther, you have to do all of that, you know, the special in advance to give you your visa waiver, pay your $12 or whatever it is. You're going to have to do the same when you move, when you go to the EU in the future, because there's a new, a similar scheme mm. called ETIAS coming in. Um, <laughs> just, you know, I warned you, I've warned you, George, you know. Um, <laughs> You know, to give you to 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 do that, but this is the functioning of border control, and 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 I think that yes, we we had free movement before. Um, many of us did, you know, had empty passports with no stamps in them because the majority of our movement was within the European Union. But that's no longer. Mm-hmm. But I would advise anyone who who doesn't know what I'm talking about, or who's confused <laughs> about this, there's a brilliant blog. By um, Steve Pierce, who's an EU law expert. You can find him on Twitter. He's got thousands and thousands of followers. He's got a really good blog that is all about this particular issue because he was getting so annoyed <laughs> about all of this kind of public outrage and this idea that somehow we're being punished. We're not being punished. We're being treated like the rest of the world. <laughs> that is a good. That is such a good description. <laughs> it's a good reminder. This is one of the consequences you may not have anticipated it yourself, but yes. Even though people were told. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> Mikola, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Always just educating us, educating us, educating us. Thank you so much, Mikola. And just thank you for letting me rant. You always <laughs> let me rant. I love it. Love it. So good. Thanks so much, listeners. We'll see you soon. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 